Hello and welcome to Wives and Knives, a true crime podcast with me, Danny Smith. And me, Kelly Lee. Please remember that we mean no disrespect to anyone mentioned in this episode or across any of the Wives and Knives platforms. We have an interest in true crime and related topics and whilst we may offer our own personal views on certain subjects, it is meant to be educational and as light-hearted as possible. The information we present is collated from research gathered on the internet and we reference and credit our sources wherever possible. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we would love to hear from you. We are Instagram Wives and Knives the Pod, Twitter at Wives Knives and Facebook Wives and Knives. There's also a website where you can see lots of photographs that really complement our cases and we update it all the time. The website is wivesandknives.wixsite.com forward slash my site. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Wives and Knives. Yeah, hello. I hope you're all keeping safe and well out there. Yeah, this week we have a mini episode for our lovely listeners. Danny and I are going to cover two cases for you. And both of these have arson as a central theme. But before we get into that, let's have our usual little catch up. I mean, we say this, don't we? We go, let's have our usual little catch-up. And I did see that someone said that if you're going to have catch-up, make it interesting. Mm. Well, I hate to break it to you listeners, but we're not that interesting. (laughs) No, I've had a very uninteresting week, but it's been pleasant. Next week should be far more interesting because I'm off work, so I'm going to go on lots of adventures. Kelly, how have you been? Yeah, (laughs) I'm standard. I am okay. Uh, lots going on, as you know. Um, so I'm not going to bore everybody. Um, let's talk about in- interesting things then. So conversations to die for mentioned us on Instagram, which was vicariously through seeing red, giving us um, yet another recommendation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think that's it. Really, do you want to say anything about seeing red? They're great. <laughs> I love him. Um, I didn't get to attend this month's book club because I was out having cocktails, but um, oh. I will read the next one definitely. So you you you've got a tardy, a tardy note against you in class for book club then, have you? Yeah, but I pre-booked the table. Pal. Fair I couldn't enough. do anything about that. Did you have Did you have um espresso martini? I did have an espresso martini, and it was very nice. I would have had more, but. The previous weekend, I'd been uh, somewhat poorly, and it put me <laughs> off living life on the edge for a little while. So I didn't have many, but they were very nice. Good, yeah. I mean, the I was trying to think. The weekend, like weather-wise, was absolutely like cracking flags up here, wasn't mm. it? It was beautiful, loving, loving the hot weather. Um. So, yeah. Oh. Feel like we should maybe say something a bit better yeah so conversations to die for mentioned us which was great wasn't it From, yeah off the back of um yet another seeing red recommendation so thank you so much yes we love seeing red we do definitely um lots happening in the oh no what about speaking of seeing red um and other podcasts 
there are the podcast awards that are coming up, aren't they? Yeah, so there's these podcast awards that are through Amazon Music, and it was Kelly, you went on to vote for somebody, somebody, <laughs> and realised that we're included in it as well, I know. which is crazy because I still feel like to me we're not a legitimate podcast we're just like having fun and recording our babble we are but but we are a legitimate podcast but I think that I think yeah it was a bit of a shock to see us among other podcasts yeah so that's really cool Um, yeah so you know vote for who you want to vote for there's some great yeah it's really cool we didn't know about this so um yeah um so other things, lots happening in the true crime world at the moment. Um, Colin Pitchfork, his um, controversial release has been in the news. So he was jailed for life in January 1988 for raping and murdering 15-year-old Linda Mann in 1983 and Dawn Ashworth in 1986 in Leicestershire, England. Yeah, Pitchfork was the first murderer convicted on DNA evidence. And he recently was denied parole, and that was back in 2018, but it has now been authorised. The parole board apparently said that his behaviour has been positive and he often helps others. I I don't care. No, yeah. (laughs) I don't care how good you are if you raped and murdered people. There's no redemption in my mind. No, same. And I think, like, the original... Uh, the judge who originally sentenced him said that the killings were particularly sadistic and he himself doubted that Pitchfork would ever be released. I think it's really disrespectful to the victims and their families. Um, he's 61 years old. Like, that's not mega old. There's still... You've got plenty of your life to live there, I feel. I just don't think it's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, at 61, you can still be going around murdering people so yeah it's um yeah disrespectful to the girls and their families was a good way to put it i think definitely um so this week we have decided to cover some cases that we've both been interested by and when we got chatting about them in a bit more detail we actually realized that they both had the shared theme of arson yeah, so did you know that arson is still the largest cause of fire in England and Wales and costs the economy £2.53 billion a year? Wow. Crazy, isn't it? Hmm. I grew up with a firefighter in my family and he always made us really aware of how dangerous fire can be and how quickly it can spread. And the thought of being trapped in a burning building is truly horrific. The tale of arson that I have to share with you today is no exception. I first heard about this on Seeing Red last year and it really stuck with me. It's 2016 in West Yorkshire and two acquaintances, Daniel Jones, who is 29, and Ben Kay. So Daniel Jones was in debt. He was a gambling addict and he knew that Ben, his acquaintance, was away. So he decides to break into his house and take what he could, which was a small safe containing £850 and a small amount of ketamine, what everyone has in their house. Essentially, these two were friends and Daniel never wanted Ben to know that he was the perpetrator. So he's hoping to get in, make this stuff, uh, do what he, he does with it and hopefully Ben will never find out. 
But Ben returns to find he's been robbed and understandably he is pissed. But given the items that are missing, he's not going to tell the police, is he? But that doesn't stop him conducting his own investigation. And he mentions, whilst in the company of Daniel, that he thought whoever had broken into his property might have been captured on the CCTV that belonged to a house across the road. Daniel was already concerned that Ben was suspicious of him and he worried that if Ben was to gain access to the CCTV he would see in the van that Daniel had used, which was his work van so it was easily traced back to Daniel. So Daniel is told that the family that had the house with the CCTV are away on holiday and that Ben will be able to access the CCTV when they return home. So early morning, October 19th, Daniel fills up his van with diesel, heads into Leeds where I believe he visits a massage parlour. Then he buys a large amount of petrol before heading back to the house with the CCTV. So his van's diesel, the petrol, is obviously not for his is that mm. he approaches the door with the can of fuel he's seen pacing up and down towards the door before pouring petrol through the letterbox and setting it alight now this is the early hours of the morning and what he doesn't know is that the family the broadhead family who had actually returned from their holiday were sleeping inside andrew sarah and their daughters mia and kira the fire was huge and ferocious and it took hold super quickly. The parents woke up to an explosion and they frantically tried to escape. I can only imagine how awful this would be and the panic that you'd feel. Yeah. Mum Sarah got Mia out of the bedroom window whilst Andrew went to get Kira. The fire crew arrived within a matter of minutes, like really fast response times, and the neighbours spilled onto the streets to try and help. But Andrew and Kira just didn't make it. Kira was brought out of the house by fire crew and she was pronounced dead at 4.37. Andrew was retrieved and pronounced dead a little while after. Oh, that's, that's awful. I, like, I really feel for them all, but like imagine getting yourself out and like hearing your husband and daughter coughing and screaming behind you and then like it all goes quiet. Yeah, it's awful and the whole community of Stanley was shattered. A sea of flowers were placed overnight outside the house and many people came forward speaking of what a lovely man Andrew was and how bright, vivacious and kind his daughter had been. Instantly the fire service suspected arson and they appealed for anyone with information to come forward and it was declared a murder inquiry. The police said that the person who started the fire was likely to have been burnt as the fire took hold so quickly and they asked the public to come forward if they knew anyone with these type of injuries. Meanwhile, Daniel was absolutely shitting it. He was googling the case constantly. Remember, he supposedly believed that no one was in the house. The police, however, were on to him pretty quickly, using CCTV and the tracker on Daniel's work van um, that he was still using, by the way. And no doubt some little like local knowledge and tidbits, Daniel was well on their radar and he was arrested just three days later. He gave no comment answers to the questions, but even so, he was charged and held until his trial in November 2017. He was charged with two counts of murder, arson and burglary. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. 
Daniel said that he regularly smoked cannabis and occasionally used ketamine and cocaine, but he didn't have a drug problem. He said he'd been to Gamblers Anonymous meetings and was planning to declare himself bankrupt because of the huge amounts of debt he was in, but insisted that he didn't steal the safe containing the 850 quid and the ketamine from his friend's home. The prosecution's case was that he acted to try and destroy evidence. Mia, who was only 12, spoke in the courtroom about what she had lost. It was a very unusual thing, as in most cases the minimum age to speak in a court is actually 14. She gave a really emotional speech about her dad and sister. I can only imagine how heartbreaking it must have been. It's reported that Daniel Jones stared straight forward and showed no signs of emotion during the trial. The prosecution argued that Daniel must have known that people were in the house because a light was on. This hasn't been proven either way and it is likely that we will never know if he did or did not realise that people were in the house. The jury were quick to find him guilty of the burglary and arson but chose manslaughter rather than murder and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. What do you think of the sentence? Well, I am a strong believer in if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. So I honestly think that it could have been more. Um, He killed two people, whether he meant to or not, and the reason why he set the fires was purely to protect himself over like less than a grand. Um, I did read an article that said he'd been caught like off other CCTV glancing up at the bedroom window. Um, I think where you said like there was a light on. So like to me, it's questionable that he might have known the family were home and still set the fire. Like this guy, his mate, um, Ben, he's already on to him. Like he'd already seen his van, hadn't he, in the area. And that's why he warned him about the potential CCTV the day before. Like, I, I wanna know why, what was this guy gonna do to Daniel? Like, do you know more about them? Do you know more about Ben? The relationship, they were, he was like a hard man. Yeah. I was he had a reputation so he wouldn't have dealt with it in a legal way he'd have probably dealt with it with his fists so that is what he was scared I was yeah I was thinking that um not wanting to cast aspersions of course but a a safe and a supply of drugs are stolen from the property um Mr Jones doesn't believe he has a drug problem but he made damn sure not to piss off his inverted commas supplier that's how I read it um So I guess then into that, you've got a factor in possible addiction, you know, drugs and gambling into that. But at the end of the day, whilst I am sympathetic of both, he's killed a child and her father. And if he plays nice, he's going to probably be out before he's 50, which is an age that neither of his victims saw. So I have little to no sympathy for him, I'm afraid. Totally true. Um, I would love to know if he did think there was people in there or not. I lean towards possibly he was so in the moment that he wasn't thinking if he'd psyched himself up to do this but that's no excuse and like you said he'll be out by his 50 which is disgusting but you know what the CCTV at the house wasn't even working anyway how fucking horrible he was trying to destroy something that didn't exist that just makes it even worse and and the other thing is he's a burglar by trade really is what you know like so why didn't he just break into the house yeah okay so there's no one in 
there's no one, they're away on holiday, but yet your first instinct is to set fire to the property. You're a burglar, break in. Break in and steal the CCTV. You, you know, why burn it to the ground? Yeah, it comes across just, as someone who doesn't think logically. Who, he doesn't sound remorseful either. Yeah. I don't find him to be quite remorseful either, so that annoys me. So yeah, I think it should be much more than 20 personally. So I'm not a judge. I should be, but... <laughs> um, okay, well, that was, that was fucking horrible. Yeah, uh, it was horrible. Grim, isn't it? It's really stuck with me because it seems to go from a theft of what is in comparison a small amount of money to the loss of two lives in a matter of days that's it what snowballs. Yeah. that i think that's why it stuck with me it's so that's what i mean if you can't do the avoidable. time don't yeah it's avoidable don't do the, can't do it the time don't do the crime so if you're going to steal from a hard man you are going to get your legs broken yeah well then don't steal from a hard man then and if you do, take your bloody licks. Yeah. Shuffle along with your broken legs until they're healed. Learn from your mistakes and crack on. Don't fucking set fire to houses and kill innocent people. Idiot. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. <laughs> Feisty Kel. Um, we've got another... It's not going to get any better. No. I'm just going to just quick disclaimer there. It's not going to get any better. Uh, because this week I'm going to take you through the case of the most prolific British serial killer that you've never heard of. And this guy confessed to a total of 11 acts of arson and was convicted of 26 counts of manslaughter, meaning that he killed more than the Yorkshire Ripper, the Moors Murderers and the Black Panther combined. That's mad. And why I don't know more about him is even more shocking, so do tell. Well, you would be forgiven for not sort of knowing much about this guy even if you are into true crime because um perhaps because it was around the same time as the aforementioned uh, famous killers but today i'm going to tell you all about peter george dinsdale and peter likes to change his name quite a bit so you may have heard of him go by bruce george peter lee but for, for today i'm going to like just call him peter dinsdale um, through the majority. So Peter Dinsdale was born in Manchester on the 31st of July 1960 to single mum Doreen Dinsdale. His father was listed as unknown on his birth certificate and allegedly left shortly after he was born. Peter was born with a weakened and malformed right hand and leg and it's often described as being withered. He was born with congenital spastic hemiplegia which falls under the mobility sort of symptoms of cerebral palsy. Um, but he was also epileptic and experienced seizures. Now, Doreen Dinsdale, his mum, was a single mother and a sex worker, and she returned to her profession quickly, sort of within weeks of her son's birth. And from what I've read, Doreen was ill-equipped as a mother, often leaving Peter with his grandparents or a neighbour, and sometimes even alone. It seems that she particularly struggled to care for him, um, perhaps because of his medical conditions, but she's said to have referred to him as the freak. And um, from six months old, he was mainly being cared for by his grandmother. That's horrible, and that makes me feel really sorry for him. And I'm pretty sure I won't by the end of this, but 
he didn't have it easy to begin with. Well, no. So one year after Peter was born, um, his sister Sharon was born. And because of Doreen's lifestyle and the children's sort of chaotic upbringing, they were actually placed into care from a very young age. So at the age of three, dirty, small, undernourished and not achieving his developmental milestones, Peter was taken into his first children's home. So he stayed there for a year and when he was healthier at the age of four, they tried to place him back with his mum. And Doreen, who was still working in the sex trade at this time, would hide the small child, like when she had clients round, and she would leave Peter at home alone, like when she went out. And he would actually try to follow his mum when she left, and he would often be found, like, toddling around the streets. So within weeks, he was back at the children's home. At the age of six, they once again tried to place him back with his mother, but he's quickly returned to care. And I understand, like, it's often in the child's best interest to be with the birth parents, but in this case, I'm like, just fucking give it up. Yeah. Like, why, <laughs> why not place him with someone who gives half a shit? And I mean, that's just in terms of her as a mother, like, not because she's a sex worker, but just purely because she's clearly not cut out for it. And for him as a child, and for his sort of cognitive development and mental health, this isn't going to be great. No, definitely not. Unfortunately for Peter, whilst the children's home may have provided him with regular meals and possibly a sense of security, it didn't really provide him with a warm, fluffy environment to grow in. Like, it was quite cold, you know, he was isolated and he was often left alone. And to make matters even worse for him, um, Peter was regularly sexually abused by the older children. God. Yeah, it's, it is horrific. Horof- uh, it is horrific and I, like you said, I genuinely feel sorry for this kid, but spoiler alert, it won't last for long. So Peter was enrolled at a local school and this was like a state-run facility for disabled children or children who had learning disabilities in the local area. And a lot of these students would go home to like their own families at the end of the day, whilst Peter would go back to the children's home. So in 1969, at the age of nine, Peter, who was often penniless, poorly clothed and already known to be a loner with few friends, had developed an interest in fire, so pyromania. And he would later say that at this time he was becoming obsessed by fire. He would burn things, set bonfires and regularly dream about fire. And it's at this age that he sets his first big fire. And it is notable for a nine-year-old because he burns down an entire shopping centre and causes a shit ton of damage, around £30,000 worth of damage, which for the time was a very big deal. Like, he practically burnt it to the ground. Fucking hell. Yeah. So, Peter would make his way around town, either on foot or on his push bike, but he would always be armed with a washing-up liquid bottle full of paraffin, and got a quote here, when I, begin, when I began to feel a tingling in my fingers would set fires. So he can just hide like in plain sight, like he sets these fires and then he just can watch the emergency services dealing with the, destru- with the destruction from the crowds of onlookers because no one suspected him. Well, you wouldn't, he was a kid. Exactly. But you can understand the sense of power that he might have felt oh, that he yeah. had before. Definitely. 
at the age of 11, after being bounced around children home, children's homes, he begins to visit his mum at the weekend and Doreen is now living in Hull with her husband and Peter gets on quite well with his stepdad. Like he, you know, they chat and stuff, but the relationship between him and his mum still isn't great. And the couple don't really do much with him. Like they go out and leave him of an evening. So, you know, whilst he's with people, he's still very isolated. And in 1973, at the age of 12, he actually moves in with his mum and his stepdad full time in Hull. And he attends a new school for children with additional needs. And on the evening of the 23rd of June, 1973, Peter goes to the home of a boy from school, a six-year-old called Richard Ellerington, who lived not too far away from him, and he sets a fire. And Richard was trapped in the front bedroom of his home when his like parents, siblings, and two guests who were all in the house were all escaping from a, like a less damaged bedroom. But they were unaware that he wasn't with them and sadly he died. That is horrific. This is a really tough case to be sure. Like this is just the beginning. Wow. Now as I said no one suspected Peter had anything to do with this. In fact no definite conclusion was reached like at the inquest over the fire. So although there was like a you know, there was suspicions, they basically put it down to it being a leak from a gas oven. If we go back to Peter, at this time, the abuse that he was subjected to at the various homes, it actually follows him to the new school. And sadly, it would appear that he is now the abuser as well. And he starts to abuse younger boys at the school. That's sad to the, yeah. this sort of horrible chain is just carrying on. Absolutely. On October the 12th of 1973, that's the same year, um, Bernard Smythe, aged 72, who was said to be a reclusive bachelor on the borders of um, like senility. Is that how you pronounce that? Senility. Oh, like he was, yeah. yeah, he's on, yeah. So he's probably got a touch of dementia, mm. maybe. He's sleeping in the lounge of his house when a fire breaks out and he becomes trapped in the overcrowded room that he predominantly lived in and again he dies. Now paraffin was detected as the accelerant but it was put down to two paraffin heaters, one of which was overturned in the room and it led investigators to believe that Mr Smythe had perhaps knocked over a candle that he used as a light because the electricity had been cut off. Oh that's so sad. It is, and it just gets worse, I'm afraid. So two weeks later from Mr Smythe's um, fire, on October 27th, 1973, David Brewer, who was 34 at the time, was sleeping on the sofa at the flat that he shared with his mum. And he actually woke up on fire. And his mum, who wasn't home at the time, um, but a quick-thinking neighbour, like, came in covered in wet towels and called an ambulance. But again, sadly, he died in hospital eight days later. And again, investigators are happy to just explain this away um, as an accident due to unconfirmed reports of clothes drying like by the fire. And the inquest concluded that these had, you know, more than likely caught light despite there being like no other fire damage like evidence beyond the settee. 
and sadly Mr Brewer was never able to speak at any point about the incident due to the extent of his injuries. It did later turn out that he had actually argued with Peter two days prior to the fire. So David had caught Peter sneaking into the pigeon loft that he owned and he chased him off. Um, and another thing that may have been a bit of a red flag if they'd connected it was that Peter returned to the pigeon loft a few weeks later after the attack and he strangled every single pigeon in the loft. That's disgusting. <clears throat> oh, leave the pigeons alone. They didn't do anything. That's so horrible. Yeah, it, it's just, I mean, I find that really creepy. Um, and I just did want to touch on this is how creepy Peter Dinsdale is. Like he's 13 at this point and he's going into people's houses to set these fires. Like he sometimes pours paraffin through the letterbox and stuff. Um, but with Richard, Bernard and David, he is actually physically snuck into their houses to set these fires. Oh. Like I was researching this and you know it's been really warm and there's like a, for me, <laughs> there's this lovely breeze coming through the window and I'm thinking to myself, I should leave those open, it's nice, you know, it's nice and cool. Yeah. Cute image of creepy ass teenager crawling through the window and setting fires to me. Yeah. Yeah, I did not sleep well that night. <laughs> So, before we go on, let's just discuss Peter a little bit in his early to mid-teens. So, during this time, like, obviously, he's still legally a child. Mm. So, when it doesn't work out with Doreen again, um, she probably got bored of him, he's placed with a foster family. And for once, he actually gets someone who, like, cares for him. Um, so, as we go through the timeline, that may be when we see possible breaks in his attacks. Um, and also in his teenage years, he actually dates two girls. Like neither of the relationships last long, um, but it does show that he's you know capable of maintaining like relationships with people. Um, and just to add, when it does break down, he tattoos both of their names on his arm. Wow, the fact that this creepy little arsonist manages to get a girlfriend astounds me. Especially when he's like known by all who knew him as like an odd loner, you know, like someone who would never sort of stand up for himself, very quiet, doesn't talk much. And everyone called him Daft Peter. Like he's considered by all in the community as odd, but not dangerous. Yeah, if he's seen as like a fool and unthreatening, um, I guess that makes sense why no one suspected him. Mm, yeah. So at 14 years old, on December 23rd, 1974, Elizabeth Roker, who is 82, is again sleeping in the lounge of her terraced home uh, when a fire engulfs the living room. Sadly, Elizabeth dies and the inquest again concludes that she had either unwittingly started the blaze herself through smoking or due to the fact that the clothes were again drying next to the fire. And relatives and neighbours just don't accept that, saying that she was a very careful smoker, you know, she never smoked in in bed effectively, mm. and she always made sure that drying clothes were at the side of the fire rather than in front of it. So when he's 15, on the 3rd of June 1976, a grandmother, 
who was babysitting for three of her grandchildren, the youngest of which being one-year-old Andrew Edwards, um, had taken the baby upstairs to put him to bed. And when she come downstairs, um, where the other two children were, she discovered a fire in the understairs cupboard. And this was the very cupboard that the kids had been playing in. So she quickly managed to get the two um, children out of the house and called the fire brigade. But in the panic, she forgot about the baby. And sadly, it was too late. And one-year-old Andrew died. And again, the inquest concludes that because the fire had started in the understairs cupboard, it was obviously that the little boy who'd been playing in there must have started it himself with some matches that he'd found. Like, the grandmother was so traumatised by this incident that afterwards she was actually committed to a psychiatric hospital. Jesus Christ. It's horrific. So, so six months later, on the 2nd of January 1977, Peter sets another fire this would claim the life of another child and this is Katrina Thacker aged six months and she was actually in her cot in the living room of her home when the fire broke out and her mother who was taking her other five-year-old sister to the toilet at the time and um, her other sister four-year-old who was asleep upstairs they were actually rescued but the fireplace that was stacked with fuel at the time um, but it hadn't it hadn't like you know what's the word gone up ignited. ignited thank you but again the inquest said that a spark from the fire a spark from the fire that hadn't that was fully stocked that hadn't you know that hadn't burned but a spark from that unlit fire had jumped across the room set fire to the sofa killing the, the small baby whose cot was next to it like i'm just I don't, I don't get the thinking on this at all. And apparently the reason for this um, fire was it was down to the pigeons again. So Dinsdale had a habit of just walking in uninvited to see these pigeons and apparently the owner didn't, you know, didn't like it and said something. So that was why. So he, like, it was the house of the baby that had yeah. the pigeons. Yeah, or the oh yeah, the owner yeah. lived in the house. Um, okay, so he's sixteen at this point, and the foster family that he's happy with, um, the, that he was living with, unfortunately, no longer get support for him because he's now, you know, not a ward of the state at that yeah. age, and so sadly, that means that he's out, and that means that once again, Dinsdale returns to his mum's. So he leaves school with no qualifications and an IQ measuring 68 um, and the average approximate IQ for this age group just for context is 105. So he's sporadically employed after leaving school. Um, he works in what were classed as menial roles so basic labouring, assisting at the local speedway track and working on the gate for Hull Kingston Rovers on match days. And he even gets a job a bit later at a local pig farm. So co-workers remember him as being quite a sad character, quiet and unassuming and often mocked and bullied by others. And at this time, he's also involved in the local rent boy scene. Are we allowed to say rent boy? I don't know. It's still a recognised term. 
I don't want to offend anybody by saying rent boy if it's if it is going to offend. I don't mean it as a derogatory term, but it is classic like that is a colloquial term for underage male sex, sex worker, worker, isn't it? So yeah, he is involved in that scene at the moment, and he's regularly sleeping with men, often to like earn money to eat or to rent a room, like to get probably a bit of a break from living at Doreen's, you know. And anyway, I have a quote from a police officer here saying that. His right arm and right leg were deformed, he had a limp, he had a habit of holding his right arm across his chest, he was poorly dressed, he was very clearly undernourished and on first impressions one had to feel sorry for him. Three days after the attack on the Thacker family on the evening of January the 5th 1977, Dinsdale snuck into a local council run residential home and the Wensley Lodge provided accommodation to elderly men with varying mental and physical needs. A support worker on night duty saw smoke coming from the first floor corridor and an, another colleague phoned the fire brigade. They quickly found the bedroom where the fire had started and managed to escort the sole resident from the room, but unfortunately the fire spread through the first floor and to the second, trapping like more residents. Harold Acaster, Victor Consit, Benjamin Phillips, Arthur Elwood, William Holt, William Carter, Percy Sanderson, John Ryby, William Beals, Leonard Dennett and Arthur Hardy all perished. So that's 11 men all aged between 65 to 95 who died in the fire. But interestingly, and we will cover this later, these 11 convictions were actually later overturned on appeal, but Dinsdale maintains his guilt on this. Again, no one suspected Daft Peter in this at all. Like, They even tried to blame a plumber who had used a blowtorch directly below the room where the fire started earlier in the day, um, even though experts said that there were no faults with the plumber's work or tools and you know the plumber himself strongly denied any errors on his part. Like, on statistics alone at this point, you'd think someone would be asking some questions. Like, isn't there a pattern wherever this creepy little kid goes? Um, but no, and so more victims are killed. Exactly. April 27th, 1977, the Jordan family were staying with friends, the Hoopers, when a fire broke out in the house. And again, Mr Jordan's asleep on the sofa. Uh, he runs upstairs to warn everybody and um, before managing to escape himself and Mr Hooper woke everyone else up they're all staying in uh, like all sleeping in a big bedroom together mm. so he woke everybody else up and they began you know helping them to escape out of the window but two of the children well two of the children made it out along with the adults but sadly the other two didn't and Mark Jordan who was seven had gone back in to help his friend Deborah Hooper and Deborah was 13 and she was disabled so he'd gone back in to help her make sure she got out but they both became overwhelmed by the smoke and died. Mark was later recommended for a posthumous bravery award and again you guessed it the inquest alleged that a rogue cigarette had been left burning despite, again, there being very little evidence to support this. And January the 6th, 1978, there is just more carnage when another fire happens. And this time, 
it's uh, Mrs. Christine Dixon and she's 24 and she stood like chatting to a neighbour outside, a husband who was ill at the time was upstairs in bed and her four children, one of which was a baby, were also in the house. So Christine, when she stood outside chatting to her neighbour, like glances at the house and notices smoke coming out from one of the windows upstairs and she runs inside. She grabs her baby and quickly hands it to the neighbour before running back inside to get the other three kids. A husband, he manages to get out, but she then gets trapped and is engulfed by the flames. So Christine, who is 24, and her sons, Mark 5, Stephen 4, and Michael, who was 16 months, all died in the fire. And the inquest suspected that the eldest two boys... So the, the five-year-old and the four-year-old had lit the fire themselves. Although again, this is strongly refuted by the father and the neighbor and the mother was later given a posthumous bravery award. What is wrong with these inquests? Right, literally. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like this is 24. Tried doing a proper inquest rather than handing out bravery awards. Well, yeah, posthumous I mean, bravery. Yeah, but, but what good is yeah? Exactly. It's so it's so frustrating. Like cuz this is 24 people. This is killed now. Like he, you know, it's up to you if you count the 11 men in the home, but he certainly does. And I, I just find it really hard that there's no one suspecting arson. It's like just a lot of terrible fire-related accidents in a concentrated area. But the thing for me is that he's also known to have set fire to numerous like unoccupied dwellings and outbuildings throughout this time as well. So that really annoys me because not only have you got fires where people are being killed, but you aren't investigating like the abundant random fires in the area as well you know like when is someone going to wake up and smell the burnt sofa <laughs> so on june 21st 1979 dinsdale who is 18 at this point so he's an adult he sets fire to a masonette and 27 year old Ro rosabelle fenton who was pregnant at the time and her eight-year-old daughter samantha are inside now they managed to escape, but they both suffered serious burns and sadly, Rosabelle miscarried her unborn baby not long after. So for a lot of these victims, like they had no beef with Dinsdale, like real or perceived, like they were seemingly unconnected victims. But Dinsdale's final fire is very personal and it would seem that he's finally picked the wrong victims. Now, the Hasty family. So the Hasty family lived at number 12 Selby Street and this family consisted of parents Tommy and Edith Hasty and their seven children. So four sons and three daughters. Now Tommy Hasty had a long criminal record and the rest of the family seemed to be following in his footsteps. They were involved in vandalism and theft and they had quite a lot of run-ins with the neighbors and the police. So they're commonly known in the area as like the problem family or the rough family, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So on the 4th of December, uh, 1979, with Tommy in prison once again, Edith had taken her daughters to relatives nearby. So with just the four boys to look after, she puts them to bed and settles down for the night. Shortly before midnight, paraffin, 
was poured over the porch and through the letterbox before being set alight and the house is quickly engulfed in flames. Charles Hasty, aged 15, managed to get his nine-year-old brother Thomas out of the back um, bedroom window, helping his mum to do the same before he became trapped with his two other brothers, Paul, 12, and Peter Hasty, eight. The fire service did manage to get the boys out, but they had suffered 80% burns to their bodies and they all succumbed to their injuries over the next few days in the burns unit of Wakefield's Pinderfields Hospital. So, I mean, problem family or not, that is fucking terrible. And I really, really feel for Edith Hasty in this because at the funeral, um, there is a low, uh, like a noticeable lack of mourners. Um, and she was filmed actually shouting at, at the people who were watching, um, which one of you fucking murdering bastards did this? It was one of you. I think there was like a general theme of that they got what they deserved. That's really shitty because no one really deserves that. No, no, they didn't. Um, but even the police said that they had never like known a family be so hated in an area like they, you know. Um, so and finally, the fire investigators could in no way deem this as an accident because there were spent matches found on the porch an overwhelming smell of paraffin as well as like a, an actual pool of paraffin nearby where someone had clearly set a can down or a bottle down of it mm. and a note was found which threatened the family and um, basically telling them to leave or be bombed out so the police started looking for you know someone who was clearly out for revenge and they focused on this note and they actually checked handwriting samples of hundreds of people in the local area and they did get a match but it was to a frail elderly lady and she'd been absolutely terrorized by the boys by the hasty boys right. and she was a very quiet unassuming church-going little old lady and she just basically lost it i think i mean she played a cracker because this letter starts with and I quote, a family of fucking rubbish. We all hate you. So she's, she's actually said that she thought if she wrote it in their language, that maybe it would help them understand what she was going through. So I, wow. I, found, that, I found that quite funny, really, to be fair. But not for the police, because that, that was their main... The police are wondering now if there are any other suspects that, you know, that because it's obviously not the, the lady. So they wonder if the house next door had been the real target because it was a known drug den. Like, had somebody got the address wrong? What a lovely area this must be. <laughs> um, six months on, the police are just, like, completely at a loss and they've explored every line of inquiry except one. And this line of inquiry is the fact that, well, Charlie Hasty, the 15-year-old who had died in the fire... Um, had allegedly been involved in the local rent boy scene. So he'd potentially been working as an underage male prostitute. And the police questioned lots of people involved in the scene, and that included Dinsdale, who now, at the age of 19, is going by the name Bruce Lee. So it's Bruce Peter George Lee. But he was, by all accounts, obsessed with the one and only Chinese-American martial artist, and he thought by changing his name, he would automatically become cool and no longer be daft Peter. 
Now, I've also read that his stepfather's surname was also Lee, so perhaps that factored in as well. I'm not 100% on that one. Now, Lee confirmed that not only did he know Charlie Hastie, but he had been involved in indecent sexual behaviour with him. Now, Lee was not charged with any offence stemming from these revelations and was released by the police. And the policeman in charge of this case is a guy called Ron Sagar, and he is under immense pressure to solve the case. And he decides to sort of pursue the Charlie being an underage sex worker angle because it has been confirmed by Lee. So in a desperate move, Ron Sagar decides to bring in sort of like the known gay sex offenders um, and accuse them straight out of setting the fire that killed Charlie and his brothers. And due to his recent admission, Lee is also called back in for questioning. Now, Sagar accuses him outright, just like he has with the other men. And, you know, he goes like, we're accusing you, we're saying you did the fire, it's you. And to his surprise, Lee replies, I didn't mean to kill them. Oh my God. I mean, well, this just blows my mind because if Lee had denied knowing Charlie, like it's unlikely he would have been asked come back in yeah yeah so he'd probably have been completely disregarded as a suspect again but lee confesses to the selby street fire and it turns out that he knew the hasty family very well in fact he was constantly mocked and ridiculed by them like a favorite target for their bullying and he also said that he'd constantly asked out 16 year old angelino angie hasty to be his girlfriend and he'd been mocked and refused each time. So he had a bit of a grudge against the family, but in particular, he wanted to teach Charlie a lesson. And he claimed that Charlie had been threatening him and extorting money from him after the pair had indulged in mutual masturbation, with Charlie threatening to go to the police because he was a minor. And to the amazement of Ron Sagar, Lee went on to confess to more fires in Hull over the previous seven years. And at first they thought he was like a bit of a fantasist um, and was just making things up, willing to confess to anything. But he gave them detailed descriptions of the fires and they realised that he, like that they had a serial arsonist on their hands and as a consequence, a serial killer. So they drove, uh, the police drove Lee around Hull to get him to show them the fires that he'd started and they tried to sort of trap him they took him to a house fire where another suspect had already been caught but he denied all knowledge and confessed to many others in all instances the fires that he admitted to were thought to have been accidents and at no time had arson been suspected and he claimed that most of the fires that he'd started at, like he started at random had just been simply because he loved fire and that he did not consider whether he was endangering life when he started them. Only the Hasty fire was a like known house as he bore a judge against Charlie. A grudge. Well. You said judge. Did I say judge? Oh, sorry. I think you said he bore a judge. Probably did. Okay. All right. So only the Hasty fire was a, no- a known house as he bore a grudge against Charles. <laughs> Thumbs up from Danny. On the 20th of January 1981 at Leeds Crown Court, 
Lee pleaded not guilty to 26 counts of murder, but guilty to 26 counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and to 11 counts of arson. And I believe there was like an, at least another 14 or 15 counts that they of arson that they just decided not to bother like attributing to him because it's probably just too much at this Like point. Shipman, uh, yeah. they didn't bother yeah. going because the number was so big anyway. Yeah. I mean, okay, so he, Lee gets life imprisonment and he's initially taken to Park Lane Special Hospital in, in Liverpool and um, before later being transferred to Rampton Secure Unit. In 1983, a public inquiry concluded that the fire at the residential home was accidental and that Lee was not responsible for it, nor therefore of killing the 11 men that died within. Um, this technically reduced, uh, reduces Lee's death toll to 15 people, which is still more than any other British killer of a similar time. But remember, like he never stopped claiming responsibility for the residential home fire. In 1993, the Home Office announced it would not be reviewing his case because there were insufficient grounds for intervention. Um, in 2005, Lee, or, you know, is it possibly... Peter again I don't know because you guessed it he's changing his name again so Peter Mawson uh, was permitted to marry his fellow Rampton patient Anne-Marie Davison which you know caused upset to his victims families because it sounds like he's having a whale of a time in there I bet but the families are quickly assured that um, while Lee was legally entitled to marry he and his new wife were not entitled to consummate the marriage that's fair enough. I don't think you should be getting those perks in prison. No, I agree. So another name change now. Uh, 2011, Mr. Peter Tredgett applied to the CCRC, and that's the Criminal Cases Review Commission, and it's the public body responsible for investigating alleged miscarriages of criminal justice in the UK. And Peter Tredgett uh, asked for the investigation to be conducted into the remaining convictions. And it finds that, yes, it should be referred for an appeal because it believes new evidence identified during its investigation raises a real possibility of quashing his convictions. So new evidence, Mr. Tredgett's confessions and non-compliance with the Police and Criminal Evidence Act are the main factors cited for this. In 2016, he's seen out on day release on escorted leave and it's reported in the press, which again is very upsetting for the families. And it's noted that he is being, um, sorry, it's noted that he's now being held in a psychiatric unit run by the Priory Group in the home counties. So I'm not sure if that is a different place to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. Um, but to me, it kind of sounds like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one former patient who was locked up with him said, uh, he's telling people he's facing a tribunal and will be discharged within six months and he's also telling people he's planning to return to Hull and it would seem that you know he may be telling the truth there because or like a somewhat confident version of it because as well as um, Peter Tredgett and the CCRC in October 2019, politicians campaigned for the Home Secretary to investigate how Humberside Police conducted itself during the investigation, which resulted in Tredgett's conviction. So people believe that his convictions may have been miscarriages of justice. And I... Wow. Yeah. 
I imagine any further push for his release has been placed on hold at the moment um, because of, you know, pandemic that's going on. Um, I couldn't find anything more up to date um, than 2019 on him. But in response to rumours of his release, the Ministry of Justice confirmed uh, his indefinite detention remained in force and it was categorically untrue that he was being considered for release. So watch this space, like worryingly, I think we may hear more about whatever he decides to call himself face in the future. I have struggled with this one. And yes, as bloody usual, I have gone on far too long when it's a mini, but I underestimated how in depth this case was. Like it's my go-to when I think of British arson and I'm actually ashamed to admit that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Um, I'm quite torn because there's no denying that Lee is a pyromaniac and he gains thrills from setting fires. Um, and whilst he had like a terrible childhood and was clearly failed, I do feel like he was very aware of what he was doing. Like I do think he selected the majority of his victims. Um, I feel like every one of them except for the elderly men seemed to have like a specific connection to him. Like I've mentioned the ones um, like the attacks where he didn't like somebody or he'd somehow crossed them but he later accounts for others too like um, Rosabelle who sadly miscarried like he says that he just didn't like her. So for me the other fires are like mainly attacks on happy families or perhaps what he sees as happy families but even more specifically I feel like he's aiming for the children like happy children like the children from school and the other girl uh, with the disabilities that he allegedly targeted I wonder if they possibly remind him of him like in his position within the world but particularly his position in a family yeah um what I do find particularly sad aside from the victim's horrible deaths is that when he was a child Peter had had like assessments and tests done and the doctors found that whilst he had you know the physical impairments um he had no sort of innate mental impairment like I'm trying to think how to word this so it's like it's manslaughter not murder because of his diminished capacity and whilst it's clear there's something like not right there his way of thinking from an early age was due to his uh, to his nurture not yeah. his nature does that make sense so I feel for me like if he had been placed with a caring foster family from say the age of three then I feel it would it would be unlikely that we'd be talking about him today I, I do believe that but that doesn't change what's ha what happened and it doesn't change the fact like that people died um, and what what I find quite surprising as well, as well about this case is that when you look at retrospective articles or documentaries discussing the UK's worst killers Peter Dinsdale's name rarely comes up and I wonder if that is because of like the manslaughter versus murder charge is it due to his age or his physical and mental capabilities or is it just plain old discrimination um, ultimately I feel that there are just like a lot of lessons to be learned here and if we don't talk about Peter Dinsdale then we can't talk about all of the victims can we?
so yeah definitely um it's really interesting what you say about it not being widely publicized as a case because that's a shame that his victim's memories aren't being honored talked about etc mm. etc et but also is it because it's uncomfortable for people to talk about him yeah i think possibly um because of his mental physical limited capability they don't want to be politically incorrect or mm. they don't want to be offensive which i completely understand yeah but it doesn't change the facts what he did the same with the whole the way he was brought up it was horrific and does mm. give some cause for his future behavior but it does not excuse it because people are brought up in all sorts of absolutely atrocious scenarios and don't go on to get the control that they so need through destroying other people's lives exactly yeah well what a wild ride that was mm. yeah and i hope everyone's enjoyed it if you want to do any more of your own research um sources uh, are in the usual place you just google one of his names yeah <laughs> yeah choose the name pick it google it um right so that's it for this week yeah next week we've got a listener suggestion and um, something that laura suggested and we've been really getting into it it oh. was a case we'd heard of and we knew a little bit but now we've done some more digging it's oh. so much more so we're looking forward to that and thank you for your suggestion laura i hope everyone is keeping well yes and we'll see you next week you will i'm just gonna do a quick shout out say happy birthday to my brother daniel yes. happy birthday daniel 40 on monday last monday so happy happy birthday to you um yeah get in touch on the socials keep safe and well out there and we'll see you next week bye, bye.